everybody and welcome to our latest episode of Second Features. Um, my name is Adrian and I'm here with my co-host Laura. Hello everyone. So Laura, can you explain what the films are and why you chose these this, this time? Uh, well, the films are Slumber Party Massacre and Slumber Party Massacre 2. Um, so these films are slasher films um, that were released in the early 1980s, kind of at the height of the popularity of the slasher genre. Um, the reason I chose them is because they are quite unusual slasher films in that um, the Slumber Party Massacre series, which was produced by Roger Corman's New World Pictures, um, the films were all written and directed by women. Um, and the first film in particular was uh, seen as being quite a sort of feminist take on the slasher genre. Uh, so they are kind of really interesting films to look at from that perspective. Also, I don't think they're particularly well known, but they are films that have a particular sort of cult following um, among you know horror fans and slasher fans. So um, yeah, I just wanted to have some chat about feminist horror, uh, feminist slashers, um, slasher films in general uh, and on that note we have as our guest today uh, Dr Alice Bryan who is a visiting researcher at King's College London um, and Dr Bryan has done a bit of work on uh, horror cinema and extreme horror cinema uh, but she's also interested in um, feminism psychoanalysis and uh, motherhood on film and the female body so uh, you hadn't seen these films before, is that right? No, no, not at all. I'm familiar with them. Um, I mean, I was just thinking we've picked one and two here. I'm assuming at some point we, we should probably do an episode on Slumber Party 3. Oh, so, I don't know. It's, so that we've covered the whole trilogy, but uh, I don't know. Um, maybe we should have done that this time. But do, yeah, I mean, Slumber yeah. Party 3 I haven't actually seen and it's not... I think it's generally considered to be the worst one. Mm. <laughs> I don't know for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, what I liked about these, we'll get more into it, but Slumber Party 2 turns out to be kind of a musical, um, which which is was an interesting twist I wasn't expecting. So uh, let's hear a little bit of the, the music that, that from that film, and then we'll get straight into discussing both the movies. Now it's time for the fun part. So, um, Adrian, I'm interested in your reaction to these films. Then, what <laughs> well, what did you think of Slumber Party One and Two? What did you? Which one did you like the most as oh, well? Absolutely, Slumber Party Massacre Two for me. Um, I'm not much of. I'm not a big slasher fan. I've seen enough slasher movies to know what they are, and to know, uh, you know, how they work. I've seen Halloween. Um, I've, I think I've seen maybe two of the Friday the 13th films. Um, but I wouldn't say that I'm a huge fan of these kinds of movies. Um, perhaps my favourite slasher film that I'm a, of all the ones I've seen is Pieces, the kind mm. of bonkers Spanish film. Um, 
I mean, for me, it's it's when it's the more insane, the better. I think when they're just quite realistic depictions of teenagers being chopped into nasty into bits, I find I'm not really I don't enjoy that very much. And so I can appreciate the that Slumber Party Massacre fits the requirements of the genre really well. Mm. Um, but for me, that was the less enjoyable film because I just maybe it's because I'm older now. I, if I was a teenager, I would probably have really enjoyed it a lot more. But now as 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 a grown-up <laughs> uh i just found it quite unpleasant <laughs> yeah i mean this latter cycle or genre or you know whatever um however you want to call it has really uh quite well-defined genre kind mm. of tropes um and you know slumber party massacre one and two they're no different so the setup the basic setup is yeah a group of teens in a suburban area um, and a maniac killer who kind of chops them into pieces. Mm. Uh, and it has kind of all the the kind of familiar uh, narrative and genre beats associated yeah. with the slasher. But when and, it comes and, to... Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, I mean, from my understanding is that it all goes back to Mario Barber's Bay of Blood, um, which, which kind of, when that was seen in America, that became a direct inspiration to Friday the 13th, which mm -hmm. then kind of kicked off the whole thing. And so, and I've seen that one. And that one, again, depicts a group of people in a beachside resort being murdered in all kinds of inventive ways. On its own, that film is is quite inventive with the, the narrative and who the killer is and, and that kind of thing. And part of the thing with that film, at least, was that you're not sure who the killer is. But somewhere that got lost in translation with the American slashers. And you, there's never any mystery as to who the murderer is. So it's not like there's a crime to be solved. It's just, here's a psycho killer, here's a load of uh, fodder, and how's he going to be stopped? That the, the, the kind of the, the narrative is building around me. How are they going to get away or how are they going to stop him? And I suppose the problem as well is that by now we know the concept of the final girl very well, which mm. audiences, when they saw the first Slumber Party Massacre, which when did that come out? It was like early 80s, 82 um yeah so the theory of the final girl was yet to be formalized so there perhaps would have been a bit more mystery around who was going to survive who was going to stop him um although what i did like with this in the end that it was actually it was kind of three girls who uh who finally stop him two of which were not even invited to the slumber party so mm. <laughs> um which i thought that so that was quite a nice extra way of uh bringing in some more people but yeah, so that in itself, just watching people be murdered quite horribly um, is not something I would choose to do. Although, is that really not your thing? Not really. I mean, okay. I know that sounds quite hypocritical because I watch a lot of films that do involve people being murdered in horrible ways. But that tends to be, I mean, these days I'm, I'm watching quite a lot of Jallo films, and mm. which again, the, the sort of slasher films have their roots in the Jallo, which often feature a mysterious killer bumping people off but again usually there's a mystery element with those films um, um it kind of depends on what cycle of the slasher film because yeah, i mean true. actually this encompasses quite a quite a lot of films this sort yeah. of genre that's um true. and yeah i think it kind of goes in cycles so like the the first the kind of golden age of the slasher is maybe you know late 70s to mid 80s mm. um so slumber parties maybe like three or four years in yeah uh and then we have like um 
the sort of 90s uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek parody Wes Craven you know <laughs> slasher oh, films. yeah well yeah I mean when we get to scream and then the the kind of um, postmodernist uh, yeah, slasher slashers. and you had all those other things like I know what you did last summer mm-hmm. and and all of those and and those as well were inventive but got tedious pretty quickly I think because they began to just recycle the same old kind of cliches and got caught up in the the same slasher rules as the films that they were kind yeah, of yeah I mean they were trying to critique those rules but yeah. essentially just ended up defining them yeah. for a new generation I mean I've always pref- <laughs> I suppose I've always preferred horror that's a little bit more outlandish or supernatural rather where slasher films I know they're not realistic but in the same way that there's a sense of realism that's perhaps why I preferred Slumber Party 2 because it draws much more heavily from Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. I mean I, I was um reading about it earlier and there's also a strong influence from the rocky horror show <laughs> and so, um, yeah i can i can definitely yeah. see that yeah so that's why for me i enjoyed the second film more which is much more bonkers hmm. um, than, than the first one which well, is good because yeah, they had to if they'd have just done the same thing again that wouldn't have been as interesting for all the people involved, I suppose. I mean, it does get a bit more batshit as the series goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the first film, Slumber Party Massacre, uh, we have a bunch of teens having a sleepover. Um, and well, you, you, they say, are... you say teens. Well, I mean, the first film, they kind of are teens. I swear, uh, those, they, those, all the people, they all look old enough to have their own teenage children. <laughs> Like they're supposed to be eighteen, but they're all about thirty-five. Um, that's kind of a thing in. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you can understand why the actors have yeah. to be, you know, twenty-one at least <laughs> before mm. um, to be in uh, these kinds of films. I don't know what the I don't know what the kind of rules are, but yeah. I mean, the first one, the first film, Slumber Party Massacre, they do look kind of like teens, a lot of them. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, the basic setup is that Trish uh, Trish Devereaux is an 18-year-old senior who decides to throw a slumber party. Um, and all the while there's this sort of, um, this uh, killer in the sort of peripheral vision of these teenagers called Russ and he carries a, a massive drill. And uh, I'm not really sure if his motivations are a ses- uh, kind of, you know, really made clear or explored, but he kind of just goes to town. And yeah, the, mm. the cast is picked off one by one. Um, the sequel, Slumber Party Massacre 2, actually features one of the teens from the first film. Uh, yeah, Courtney. now it took, it wasn't until halfway through the film that I understood who the main character was supposed to be because I couldn't yeah, she's, work um, it out she's one of, She's the young girl in the first film yeah. who survives at the end along with um, uh, two of the other characters, yeah. Trish that, and Valerie. For me, for me, that wasn't made very clear at all. I don't know, maybe no. I just was being a bit slow, but I thought she was the main girl from the first one, but then she was a year well, younger. I mean, she does and, have flashbacks to yeah. the first film. But she has flashbacks happened. to stuff that she wasn't there to see. <laughs> Are you are you critiquing the narrative continuity of this film? Yeah, a little bit. Like she <laughs> she sees things that we saw in the first movie that her character was not in the same house. When that's that fair. Happened. I think that's a fair criticism. Um, and so I was very confused about which character this was supposed to be. Obviously, the fact that they're all different actresses as well. Um, yeah, I mean, and the only... slightly different character names. So I, it took me a while to to twig who we were supposed to be. With. I mean, the main character Courtney is the the link. To the first film but yeah. i think probably the only link because the 
the sort of other people in the film are new characters, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, and they all seem to be massively insensitive to the horrendous experience that their friend had only five years previously. I mean, to the point where they're doing stuff like the guys are pretending, you know, they're coming to spook them at their slumber party and one of them pretends to be stabbed. It's like, do these people, how short a memory have they got? You know, they're like reenacting stuff that she went through for years and was really traumatized by. Yeah, uh, I uh, like very... that. I wasn't uh, in terms of kind of acting and pathos and yeah. narrative motivation for the characters. <laughs> I think I, it I leaves wondered, a lot to be desired. Yeah. And she also, I wondered whether they'd moved to a different city or something because mm. that the house that she's living in at the beginning isn't either of the houses that we see in the first movie which was another thing that also no, it's conf not. confused me about um, who we were with so maybe she moved to a different town nobody's remembered this horrendous series of murders and that's why they keep forgetting that their friend is suffering from major post-traumatic stress and they can just be really childish about the whole thing also a lot of it is I mean, they're all like 28 as well. Did you notice that? Like they're play the cast of characters in the second one um, are playing yeah. teenagers, but they are visibly almost 30. Yeah. Again, um... <laughs> they all look like they should have their own teenage kids. Um, <laughs> that was picked up by the, one funny. of the reviewers as well. Like these, mm. it's, it's quite a bit, it's a bit strange actually. Um, yeah. We're meant to believe that these people are teenagers. And also they're doing very cliched teenage things like... Um, Things that teenagers never do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people, things that teenagers do in, in movies. They also uh, behave like bands only do in films. Like when they've got, they're yes. having, so the, in the second film, um, yeah, they've got this garage band, but it, the, the, the mix is amazing considering it's just the four girls. There's no, uh, there's no sound desk. There's no live sound mixing going on, but the production on their music coming out the garage is amazing but then that's contrasted at one point in the film you see them all just kind of jamming and mucking about and that was obviously recorded live in the room and that sounds much more like they should be sounding all the time instead of this perfectly mixed sound that they've got that as somebody who's been in plenty of bands over the years and know, know how bad you sound when you're in a room with your friends that um that always amuses me when you see film bands who just sound too good also uh, um those the, a lot of the film is padding in terms of the the long takes of them playing in the band oh, you yeah. know we linger on them for about three minutes while they oh, play quite yeah, we get, mediocre uh, yes. songs full and full production numbers like I, had, is, I actually well i googled it to see like are these people famous is this like a musical showcase film where we get mm. a bunch of famous teens together well not teens but we get a bunch of famous <laughs> bands and we just use the film as an excuse in order to kind of show these people playing which you know, fine, it's exploitation, but yeah. no. <laughs> no. Um, like I think the the person who plays the um, fantasy driller killer character in the second film is actually a musician, and that's no. why he sings. He was a musician at the time, yeah. um, but I think he's pretty much the only one. Mm. I think it's part, obviously, you know, it's just they know, they think they know what teenagers like, and uh, and maybe they can sell some soundtrack albums at the same time well that's like a long that's kind of a traditional exploitation thing isn't it yeah uh, like producers trying to figure out what teens like and then giving them some kind of weird cliche yeah. and but like you said there's a lot of filler in the second film the first film although i didn't like it as much it's much more tightly plotted mm. yeah it is very much well tighter. and very well directed and, and edited the second film 
it's pretty loose and considering it's short running time there's still a lot of just hanging out with these kids and not really much happening but, yeah, not, but I mean, not in a good way the second film <laughs> um came out after nightmare on elm street mm. uh was you know massively successful so the second film is uh deriving a lot f- yeah. of its kind of plot and set up from uh nightmare on elm street in and terms I, of like yeah. the fantasy sequences the dream sequences and i think we'd already by this point got to nightmare on elm street 3 so this that series was already turning much more comedy and mm-hmm. kind of fantasy. I mean, the first film is uh, is much more a straight horror, and then the series very quickly kind of deteriorated into farce. Um, and this film, so Slumber Party Massacre Two, seems to be inspired much more by Nightmare on Elm Street Three, I think, or those mm. the, the kind of later films that get quite silly. Um, it is very silly. Yeah, I mean, just the guitarist, the the, the demon guitar. Where did he even come from? I, I'm as, I'm assuming that she's having these nightmares and it's based on the the guy they killed in the first film so but they've kind of retconned the whole thing so that the the murderer from the first film is now this the kind of rockabilly yeah this kind of stray cats uh guitarist in full um, leather yeah and he's not the same guy he's no. younger um he's more attractive or he's coded mm. that way um and he's a rock star he's kind of a he's a 50s greaser and i'm not sure why but he wears yeah. a leather jacket what? and he has a guitar this ridiculous guitar with a drill on the end of it oh, it's amazing, and um yeah he shows up in her dreams and uh kind of traumatizes her but also kind of excites her as well um so she fancies him so there is that kind of like um yeah that tension there a little bit rockabilly and psychobilly you know the stray cats were massive in the 80s so this again just seems to be another way to to appeal to the youth crowd by uh by putting this kind of stuff in um in the first film i think the killer was much more manson family based in there's there's an interview with the actor i've forgotten his name but he talks about basing his performance and his motivation because he was very much um method school this guy and he read books about the manson family and that's where he really got it from and uh yeah, but yeah in the second film it's like a rockabilly Fr- freddy krueger and it's so it's ridiculous he just turns up and goes hey baby he's like yeah. um yeah like the fawns but like a oh. crap psycho killer yes. version of the fawns yeah and with a guitar that would not look out of place uh in a slipknot gig the kind of the story behind these films is kind of interesting, but you wouldn't. I mean, I I watch these films expecting them to be quite a par- parodic of this slasher genre, but actually, I was the second one kind of is the first one not so much. Mm. Um, but the first film, Slumber Party Massacre, was meant to be a feminist kind of parody of slasher films, and it was the screenplay was written that way by uh, the screenwriter Rita Mae Brown, who was a prominent feminist, radical feminist and activist. Uh, yeah, and isn't, this... isn't that interesting that she would write a script that ended up with Roger Corman? It seems quite yeah. an unusual move. And, you know, she was she was such a radical feminist that she, you know, left. Uh, she kind of criticised Betty Friedan and, and left, um, you know, a, 
some prominent activist groups because she didn't think people were radical enough. Um, so she, yeah, this script ends up uh, with Roger Corman. And apparently, you know, Rita Mae Brown was very unhappy with the fact that they changed the script to make it less of a kind of critique. So I would be mm. really interested to see that original script and see what it was like, because I'm guessing what we see on screen is quite different. Yeah, and I believe um, there was there were far more overt um, sort of le references to lesbianism in the film, which mm -hmm. were really toned down. I mean, they're still there if you want to look for them, but yeah, but certainly it was more overt, is my understanding, in, in her yeah, original I mean, intention. The screenwriter's thing was that she um, didn't like how uh, lesbians and um, you know, uh, LGBT, uh, well, uh, LGBT activism. Um, she didn't like how kind of uh, the feminist groups were sidelining or ignoring um, lesbian members or gay members. And she uh, was really angry about that. But when you watch the, yeah, the first Slumber Party film, the one that she wrote, there is a lot of um, shots of women uh, naked. There's a lot of really kind of sexualized shots, but they're very much, like, again, they don't read as a parody. They don't kind of seem to be saying, uh, oh, this is a very tongue-in-cheek take on how the slasher sexualizes teen bodies. It's actually just straightforward exploitation. So, again, yeah. it's not really feminist. Which was straight out of the Roger Corman rule book. Yeah, um, basically. He, he had a rule that every 15 minutes in his film, like, when the films that he was as a producer, it's something like every 15 minutes you had to see some sort of skin on screen. And you did. Um, you certainly do. <laughs> but I mean, that seems to play to or assume a kind of male audience. Mm. Um, and the idea of a sort of feminist slasher series like Slumber Party uh, seems to kind of assume that uh, these films were made for men and uh, men watch them. Um, and it was unusual for uh, these films, for female audiences to like them. But actually, um, you know, Jeffrey Noah Smith has done some work that suggests that that wasn't it wasn't that straightforward. Um, slasher films were made to appeal to female audiences. There was more of a mix between, mm. you know, people who in terms of the types of people who watch these films. Mm. So we kind of have this assumption that it's quite a um, not anti-feminist, but or maybe an anti kind of anti-feminist genre or a genre that kind of is made for or appeals to young men. But mm. maybe that's not really the case. And people have talked about Roger Corman films as being quite progressive in terms of female roles and female representation, because although he had these basic rules, as long as you ticked those boxes, he would allow his filmmakers to a lot of freedom to do whatever they wanted. So you've got people making films like Nightcore Nurses and stuff like he would give them a title that was quite exploitative and sell, tell them you know, there's got to be a certain amount of skin on every so often. But other than that, they could do whatever they want. So you get quite several of his films are um, relatively progressive for their time. And he was also giving women jobs in the film industry at a time when it was very difficult for women to get in as directors and editors and producers and so on um so it, it, there's a kind of tension between the two things there's the there's the exploitation and then there's also the the freedom and i've I was been looking at some interviews and things that people have said about that and um there's the idea that yes he was he was getting women a, a way into the industry i mean obviously um the director of this film uh, amy jones talks about the fact that she it was her first film as director Mm -hmm. uh, because Roger gave her that chance, but also 
but he would also do this because he knew he didn't have to pay them very much. So well, that's was, the other thing about exploitation. Know. It's not all altruistic. Yeah, <laughs> he, he would hire women and give them work, but he didn't necessarily pay them all that much. I mean, yeah. she, she talks about how she had the opportunity to edit E.T. It was either that or direct Slumber Party Massacre. And she went with Slumber Party Massacre, which is kind of on reflection an interesting choice but it's certainly well she it, wanted to direct her on film yeah, i assume and that's it and, and roger corman for all of his faults was giving people the chance to direct but his you know there's, there's some great books about him and his legacy and there's the books that he's written about himself but the, the best book about his career was by beverly gray who worked for him for a number of years but then after she wrote this book she didn't work for him anymore because it's a little bit too honest mm-hmm. about the sort of complicated legacy of roger corman and um i was just i was just gonna there's one part where she talked to somebody called lorette hayden who was his assistant at new world she talked about the fact that she part of her job was to help with breast checks in which leading ladies were asked to bear themselves above the waist to prove that their bosom was suitably photogenic I mean, that's. I mean, I, I have always been quite suspicious of the, but we're giving opportunities to women yeah. narrative because precisely because obviously there's, uh, you know, there's going to be some dodgy stuff going on, um, yeah. and at the level of kind of exploitation film especially, um, but you know, I can't, I don't have data to back that up, so I'm just yeah. leave it, gonna at leave it. At least that's better than Lloyd Kaufman in his one of his books. He talks about making. He advises filmmakers to always video your um auditions and to always ask your actors and actresses to be naked in their auditions Jesus so that Christ. so that you'll know that they'll do it for you in the in the films but also it means you've got loads of videos of naked people and that's actually what he talks about uh. in his book so at least roger corman you know was slightly more above board but it was but it was still part of the process um so yeah Com- complicated he's still he's still on twitter isn't he he's still around he's Coleman. still oh yeah he's still giving opportunities to filmmakers and i mean still, he's still producing he's about nine what is he now 95 or something i would yeah i guess and mid-90s. he's still he's still producing he's, he's amazing i mean i just to i know this is a now a regular feature on our podcast but i have met roger corman tell us your roger corman story Adrian. Oh, it's, it's not that good i just i got his autograph he he did a <laughs> he did a q a at a screening of mask of the red death at the bfi uh, what what did you say to Roger Corman? I had a lobby card from his very first film as director. It was a Western. Mm-hmm. And I'd found this original lobby card. And so he signed it for me and he said, oh, that was my first film. And then he posed for a photo and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> I think I told him how big, of, you know, what a big fan I was, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Do you still but, have the photo? Um, yeah, of course. Well, you should tweet the photo. I will, I will. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was very impressed at the time because he was in his mid-80s then and mm. there was a huge queue at the BFI and he signed everyone's stuff for free. He just let everybody line up and he signed this all. And, you know, this is a guy in his mid-80s and he signed mm. autographs and posed for photos for more than an hour, which was pretty impressive. But, um, but yeah, he's still going. So, yeah. yeah, he's and he's won an Oscar now and he's obviously, you know, given so many people opportunities over the years. But as Beverly Gray talks about in her book, that legacy is slightly complicated. You know, he's had a lot of legal arguments with his own children he's, and all kinds of stuff has gone on behind the scenes. So, yeah. And so Slumber Party, I guess these films are a good example of that, that yes, 
they are female led female directed female produced female written but there's still that that certain level of ticking the boxes to make sure that you're still meeting all the exploitation film requirements yeah i mean and it does like especially the first film does really hit those beats on time mm. <laughs> sort of exploitative uh horror film beats with in terms of nudity and inventive murders and things like that yeah. some of it is quite some of them are quite funny uh, there's that scene where a character goes to the fridge to get something Oh, was that the first yes. film? And yes. there's she opens the fridge, but she's not looking. And there's actually kind of a, the body of a girl in there. And she just turns away, closes it, goes back, opens it, turns away, closes it. Finally goes back and opens it and the body falls out and she screams. Yeah. <laughs> like it's there's there's lots of funny little kind of moments like that, yeah. which I liked. Yeah, because they I mean, she talks, um, the director talks about the film being a comedy, but it's not. I wouldn't have said it was particularly. But yeah, it's got. It's got those moments that the funniest moments actually do come between the two sisters who have not been invited to the sleepover mm -hmm. and they're just next door keeping an eye on the party and eventually they go over there when they suspect that something is wrong. Courtney, what are you doing? I'm upstairs doing my biology homework. Why do I find that hard to believe? Don't laugh. I have to concentrate. Okay, but do me a favor and don't tear out the centerfold this time. I don't know what to call it really, but there's a moment where there's, uh, you know, the pizza guy has been murdered and he's still mm. holding, he's, he's still on the floor, like bloody holding the pizza. Oh yeah. Um, and then, you know, they sit down and look at him and then, you know, one girl picks up the pizza and starts eating it. And she's like, well, you know, we paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like really um, a bit of dark comedy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, this is a classic example of people not behaving in the way that they should in these circumstances. Like they basically <laughs> sit around in this house waiting to be killed. At least in the second film, they do make a, some of them at least, make a break for it and manage to run away. But uh, yeah, in this film, they don't, They it's like they're in some kind of a prison rather than a really big house with lots of windows and doors. And lots um, of easy ways to leave the house and yeah, get out and, they, and run away. They could even just open the window and shout for help. Mm -hmm. Like they none of they don't behave in the ways that you would. They just kind of sit there, and they're waiting for this killer to come and get them. And then one of them says, "I'm hungry." And then <laughs> like, "Hang on, you're being stalked by a psycho with a drill." How long are we gonna have to stay like this? My arms are getting tired. Till help comes, if it comes. You know what? I'm hungry. Me too. What are we going to do with him? Maybe we should cover him up. Oh. Is the pizza? Oh. Well, life goes on after all. And eating makes me feel best. When I feel bad, and boy, do I feel bad. Oh. I feel better already. Really, I do. A lot of this, to be honest, is quite bad uh, mm. filmmaking, though, isn't it? Mm. In terms of what we expect from, yeah. you know, the narrative causality and how people behave and how these scenes come together. I guess it's quite... I mean, it's quite tightly scripted, the first one, but yeah. it's still, uh, yeah, not as technically kind of polished as it could be. Uh, are we going to talk about the classic poster image for Slumber Party Massacre? Because that seems to be where a lot of its reputation comes. Yeah, as the a, poster image is amazing. That. So the poster image, which I encourage everyone to to look out to Google, 
is um, just uh, three girls uh, on the floor, no, four girls on the floor looking up at, through the legs of this guy who's holding a drill. Um, it's, it's It just kind of looks like, um, you can see why people kind of call it a feminist film. Mm. That iconography uh, kind of tells you what to expect in a way. Yeah, although I look, I've looked really closely at this poster, and I don't think any of those women are actually the women in the film. They don't look like. I honestly can't tell. I don't think um, it's. I think it's a completely different set of girls. But yeah, it's really that's interesting. That's hilarious. Image. That's yeah. like a great sort of exploitation thing as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like we don't even care. We don't care no. what the poster looks they probably like or made whether the, it relates to the film. <laughs> yeah, they made the poster before the movie. I think there, um, there is at least one shot in the film that is taken from that angle where he's standing there and there's one girl. I think mm. it's when he's stalking the girl in the school and we see her through his legs with the drill coming down like that. So it's a, definitely a shot that they use in the film. And yeah. in, in the second film, I think, is less overt in in its imagery and symbolism of the drill here. It's like, not subtle, though. Neither of no. them are particularly subtle. No um the uh it had some the film had some kind of mixed reviews and there was one review that i really liked from janet maslin of the new york times who said uh the slumber party massacre is just the usual cavalcade of corpses all of them dispatched by a maniac who wields a power drill at the end of the movie a woman who has miraculously survived the carnage breaks his drill in half that's feminism for you and symbolism too um so yeah that's feminism for you <laughs> that's symbolism for you yeah. uh it's it's quite kind of but i mean that's kind of what partly why it's funny though right that's partly why you people you can kind of read it as a parody because it's so yeah. ridiculous it's very it's i mean that that moment is kind of very on the nose um i mean the 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 monthly film bulletin review also mentions that um talks about a sisterly finale in which the surviving girls symbolically castrate and actually kill the neon-eyed homicidal maniac mm. without the help of any male cops, boyfriends or psychiatrists. <laughs> so it wasn't that symbolism was not lost on anybody, it seems. Yeah, it would be, yeah, it'd be hard to lose sight of that symbolism, to be honest. Yeah. It's, it's, from a psychoanalytical perspective, it's just too easy. <laughs> yeah, Whereas the the second film, he's got a drill, but it's on the end of his guitar. Which, and obviously which... guitars are always talked about as phallic, phallic objects anyway. But um, there's no sense of castration in the second film. He's just set on fire. Yeah, but falls that's, off a um, that's a Nightmare on Elm Street thing though, isn't it? Yeah. Like Freddy being set on fire. But And then also her waking up and is it all a dream? And then her waking up again. Yeah, there are a lot. Yeah. It's basically just nicked a lot of it from yeah. scenes of the Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> yeah, and I've also a little bit maybe Carrie. I thought with the kind of shock ending of the is it all a dream? No, it's not a dream. Oh yes, it is a dream. <laughs> maybe it's not a dream. There's that kind of thing as well with the the drill coming up out of the floor right at the end. Yeah. By, by which point I think uh, you sort of stopped caring <laughs> whether it's a dream or not. Because they've pulled, they've tried to switch a roo so many times that I think as an audience you're probably just not really that bothered. But I thought was interesting. So I looked it up, and Slumber Party Massacre did get a UK cinema release, but as far as I can tell, it did not get a VHS release at the time. Um, I heard, the, I read that the second one was 
didn't get a cert- like a BBFC certificate. No, like it it's was... listed as is not banned. I don't know if it's banned, but it just wasn't released. It was, was rejected. It? Rejected. That was yeah. It. So it was submitted to the BBFC, and they they outright rejected it. Why? Um, it's not. I mean, they've they they kind of certified much much worse in terms yeah, of gore in the past. It's very weird. I did actually try to f- I tried to find out what went wrong here. But of course, the trouble at the moment is that you can't go to any archives to look at anything. So um, eventually, when the next time I manage to get to the BBFC, I'll, I'll try and have a look at their documentation to find out what happened. It can be because it was too much. I mean, they, they cut a clockwork. They, they certified a clockwork orange in 1971. Yeah. And the devils. <laughs> like it's, it's nowhere near in that. I mean, uh, but, the, but they, I mean, traditionally, if films were deemed to have some kind of artistic bent, then they were much more lenient. Whereas something like Slumber Party Massacre 2 is much easier for them to dismiss because it's just a piece of exploitation. They just see it as trash. Trash, yeah. Schlock. So, uh, I mean, there are a lot. The, the killings, um, they're relatively gory. I mean, you do see kind of giblets spinning around on the end of the drill when he's drilled through somebody and all that kind of stuff. So maybe they just felt... and the. the the level of terrorization of the, the girls. I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out exactly why. But according to the BBFC, it's never been passed for a UK release, which I, okay. makes me wonder how it's now available quite easily uh, on Amazon Prime. Yeah, so I, I don't quite one. know what the deal is with Amazon Prime, if they can just certify for themselves and they don't need to submit a film and not entirely sure but yeah it's an odd one that it uh, it never properly got a release in the uk um but yeah if a film was was just trash they were far less bothered um about it and it did it did seem to be viewed at the time as being quite poor like the variety review calls it inept an old hat and mm. uh, and, and lame which i think is a shame because i like i said i quite enjoyed it i wouldn't have called it lame I think it's quite inventive. It's just, yeah, it's, it is. It, it's not great, but it has if, musical numbers, yeah, um, which is unusual. If uh, it was just a retread of the first one, but with a different bunch of kids, that would be quite dull. But mm, the fact, but it that, essentially it does do do very different things. Yeah, because the killer, he's in her dreams, but then he comes. To, her sister warns her, "Don't go all the way," and then she does. Well, she starts to go all the way with this boy of her dream. You know, when this... she's uh, a 28-year-old. Yeah. Um... So she <laughs> so she finally is in bed with this boy who she's in love with. And that at that point, that's when the killer comes to life. So she does... It's like the film is another one of these warnings about if you have sex, you will die. So if you have she sex does... in your late 20s, you will die. Yeah. Don't have sex she... in your late 20s, kids. <laughs> she does go all the way and then the, the killer comes to life. So it's like... Is he real? Is he some kind of Freddy Krueger type demon from the dream world? Or is he a physical manifestation of her psyche? Uh, we're not entirely sure. But he is quite a lame rock star, though. Yeah. Like, so he is I quite think... a lame manifestation of anyone's well, psyche. She is in quite a lame band, so I suppose that would make sense. <laughs> she is. If that comes from her own head. I mean, Roger Corman was always interested in psychology. He was reading books about psychology and Freud back when he was doing his um, Edgar Allan Poe films, like 25 years earlier. He was basing a lot of what happened in those films on what he'd been reading in 
from Freud and other things. So it wouldn't surprise me if he had had some form of input on mm. this one in terms of its psychology. I mean, even the, the names of his production company. So the first film is a New World production and he had read in some kind of business jargon book when he was about to start his own company um, that, that the name names that had the word new in it and also company names that had the word world in them were these were kind of eye-catching words to use so he just called his company new world it was as simple <laughs> as that and then he read another book in the 80s that talked about how words with hard c letters in them were quite memorable and eye-catching for people so he changed his company name to concord pictures so that's why slumber party massacre 2 is a concord pictures release that's just really because, why yeah just because really? Roger, yeah just because Roger Corman was reading books about psychology and how people think and uh, business jargon type things. So he was always interested in understanding how people's minds work. And that's perhaps what made him such a successful producer, because he's always been kind of know it or more or less on top of what audiences want, whether it's responding to trends or tapping into people's psyches you know he's always been interested in that and been very good at that it's kind of surprising because the slasher genre is quite rooted is so rooted in um psychological horror um mm. that that kind of corman didn't get to making slasher films or producing slasher films until quite late in the cycle because by 82 um I mean, we were kind of already at the height of the golden age of the slasher film. So it's weird that New World didn't capitalize on that earlier. Mm. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned Giallo in terms of the slasher film. Like, I there's kind of like proto-slashers. Um, so like Psy Psycho, um, Hitchcock's Psycho is definitely like the proto-slasher. Yeah. Uh, but like in the British context, and actually this film is quite similar to Slumber Party, but obviously very very different in other ways is peeping tom um yeah. the 1960 film by michael powell about a cinematographer who goes around with um a camera which kind of hides a a, a sort of knife that he kind of stick stabs his like his yeah. victims with so yeah um, it's got a sharpened tripod leg isn't it I mean, it's, yeah. it's another film about penetration yeah this kind of these uh, profile slashers about kind of uh, which are quite kind of psychological and which um, sort of almost beg a kind of psychoanalytical uh, yeah. perspective um, about kind of these, yeah, dangerous predatory men who hunt kind of young women. Yeah, so the kind of slasher cycle has its roots in all that stuff as well, I think. And I think, yeah, Giallo is really important as well. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Obviously, with um, Peeping Tom in the end, he dies on his own spiked tripod. Yes. Um, and if you want to, <laughs> so if you want to read into the whole idea of penetrating women's bodies uh, that, that we get so often in these films, and that's quite an interesting reading to as to what that could mean. But I, mean, what, that, I found that slightly disappointing, although they castrate the guy at the end of Slumber Party by chopping off, chopping his drill in half. I was really hoping he was going to then get drilled on his own drill. And that was kind of disappointing that he didn't. Yeah, in the end. not really much of a payoff. And then with the second film, the drill, I mean, again, it's not used in the same way and the symbolism isn't really there. It's just an extra long drill on the end of his um, guitar. It could have been any weapon. 
His but, penis drill is an extension of his guitar, which is yeah. already quite phallic. Mm, that's, yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, but the whole thing, but by that point, I suppose, with the slasher films, is the inventiveness of the weapon is a big deal, and the killer will have their signature weapon. The guitar uh, drill so, um, is, a, yeah. is a very original signature weapon. And they weapon. even call, I mean, I'm surprised they call him the driller killer in the credits, which I'm surprised didn't have Abel Ferrara's lawyers knocking at their <laughs> doors of, of Concord with some complaints but um i mean it's yeah, all very derivative though is it isn't it well, yeah i suppose <laughs> and it's a very different kind of drill at least in um, abel ferrara's film it's just a regular power drill not this kind of huge industrial size uh drill but yeah well that's it's, symbolism for you yes <laughs> it's obviously compensating for something but there's also there's an interesting scene where we see another woman with a very similar drill. I mean, in fact, that he gets his drill from the equipment van of a woman who is installing some telephone equipment at the high school. So that drill originally belonged to a woman. And then there's also another scene in the film where a woman has a similar drill and she's installing um, she's installing like a peephole on somebody's front door. Uh, so if you want to. Again, I think in terms of this whole the whole symbolism thing, if you want to go down that route, the fact that the drill originally belonged to a, to a woman could mean something. I don't know. Maybe mm. I'm just re maybe I'm going. I'm reaching. I think we should ask Alice about this. Yeah, this is where <laughs> we I'm, should ask Alice about. Um... I'm starting to flounder now in the symbolism of the whole thing. There's in the um, in the documentary that comes on the Blu-ray, the um, the director. Amy Jones talks about the meaning of the first film being about a virgin's fear of losing her virginity, basically. Um, yeah, you know, I can what, see that. What is he going to do with that long thing that he's got there? You know, <laughs> where is he going to put it? That's kind of she talks about that as being the the symbolism or the the subtext of the whole film, which I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily really obvious but it certainly i think people... it's really obvious is it? okay. <laughs> i thought it was I really know. obvious in the film yeah. <laughs> um yeah i thought it was interesting the kind of the, the the male roles in the film apart from the killer there's also a couple of boyfriends that are hanging around who both end up they are very crap um one notable thing about the men in both the films first and the second one uh, is how how crap they are, yeah, um, and how curiously a, sort of desexualized. Even though they're meant to be seen as being like the girls are meant to be attracted to them, but they're just quite um, wet. Like they're <laughs> they're quite kind of drippy young men. <laughs> yeah, and they, they I think in both films there are scenes where the boys watch the girls through the window as the girls are dancing around half naked. You've never been. In position. <laughs> <laughs> what we did is deserve this. We died and went to heaven. Yeah, and there's a there's a scene in the second film with a pillow fight, which oh, again, yes. when we're talking about exploitation producers trying to figure out what people want and then doing the most kind of um, ridiculously cliched yeah. thing, that's definitely uh, that scene is definitely this. <laughs> yes, I mean both of these films really it, it confirmed for me what I've always suspected about girl slumber parties. Oh yeah, they absolutely are like that. That is that is what how women behave. That is yeah. how they talk to each other. Um, mm. It's uh, these films are a really good case study in in things that women do in real life. Yeah, it's good to have that confirmed. <laughs> yeah, and the second film, the guys are particularly like just annoying. Um, 
Oh yeah. You kind of you almost want them to be to be uh, murdered in some horrendously inventive way. Mm. It's just the whole. It's the lack of empathy in that second film for this poor girl, and they don't seem to know, or she's kept it quiet, that her older sister is in a mental asylum because she was driven mad by what happened to her in you know five years ago. So there's so little empathy or understanding. These are supposed to be her best friends in the world, and yet they don't seem to know or care about the whole tra the traumatic experience. That... Like, if we don't identify with the characters or find them sympathetic, there aren't really any stakes, mm. I guess. Yeah. But she keeps trying to tell them about these terrible dreams that she's having. And instead of going, well, yeah, of course, it's understandable, this terrible thing. They're like, oh, it's the booze talking. You're fine. Why don't you go and have a lie down? Why don't you have a bath? I mean, the, the way the girls talk to her about resolving her problems is the way that a guy would talk to a woman about trying to, you know, when a woman is pouring her heart out, the guy would be like, yeah, why don't you just go and have a lie down? Why, why don't you go and have a bath? I don't know how to help you. There is a kind of thing about not being believed, like the main character in mm. the slasher knowing that something is up and just nobody believing her. Authorities not believing her, friends not believing her. So it's almost trying to do that, but the characters are kind of so unsympathetic yeah. that it just reads as being quite like... Um, yeah cold and odd is this an example of gaslighting to a certain uh, degree yeah in like... slasher films i would say yeah. yeah the way that the especially in sort of nightmare on elm street because it has that psychological dream component yeah. um so this this idea of not knowing what's going on and um, nobody believing you and knowing that something is up and uh yeah, yeah definitely just ma making her believe that she must be mad mm -hmm. uh, i thought that was quite funny the two cops when they come along and I think one is called Officer Kruger and the other one is Officer Voorhees. Officer Kruger and Officer Voorhees. Where have yeah. I heard those names before? Um, <laughs> um, and it seems I, familiar. I, yeah, there's a lot of references. So at least, yeah, the second film is much more, It's all we're almost getting to the scream level of postmodernism. <laughs> it is of kind of like, yeah, postmodern slasher, yeah. Uh, which is kind of interesting because, um, I, I mean, I guess the slasher cycle was getting more postmodern anyway towards yeah. the late 80s. This is, this is what makes me, I kind of want to see the third film now, just to see where they go with that. Like if, if the only way to go from this is up, it would be interesting to see what they do with it. I might leave it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could, I don't think anything, anything could top the second one. I yeah. think it would just be inevitably disappointing. There's, um, there's another Nightmare on Elm Street reference in Slumber Party 2, I think, when she's in the bath. Um, obviously that classic moment in Nightmare on Elm Street when the hand comes up out of the bath and pulls her down and in this film i was kind of expecting the guitar to come rising up out of the water <laughs> the when she's in the bath but instead the bath just the, the the tap turns to blood and the bath starts filling up with blood that kind of reminded me of ghostbusters too you know that scene with oh the, yeah the, that the as well. goop stuff in the bath yes. when it tries to eat sigourney weaver that's true yeah so that that was a, that was a nice kind of another reference to the fact that they are drawing from the nightmare on elm street well uh with slumber party 2 because lesbos slumber party massacre 2 if you go don't go all the way oh god anybody got any tranks okay 
Um, well, today we have Dr. Alice Haylett Bryan, who is a visiting researcher in film studies at King's College London. Uh, so uh, Dr. Bryan has published articles on uh, American Mary, um, as well as uh, an article on the uh, very controversial director, Catherine Briatt. Um, hopefully we might be able to hear a bit more about that. But uh, Alice, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about what you're working on at the minute? Yeah, sure. So currently at the moment, I am sort of continuing my research into 21st century French horror, which is what I've recently, I've got a piece coming out soon, actually, in um, French Screen Studies, they're doing a special issue on French horror cinema. Um, there's really great people contributing like Martin Bernier and Tim Palmer. Um, and I've got a, an article in there on French horror and the sort of immigration policies around uh, for Nicolas Sarkozy and sort of French immigration policies and Jacques Derrida. Um, so that's sort of one area of my research. And also I'm currently co-editing a book with Dr. Eddie Falvey on uh, international horror production in the 21st century. So we're looking at creating a, a, new, a new sort of much needed edited collection that looks at the different ways that horror cinema is, is, is created, produced and funded um, across the world. So that's my kind of my two babies at the moment, as it were, sort of French horror and, and, uh, and, and horror production. Excellent, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so um, today we were, I mean, Adrian and I have just been talking about Slumber Party Massacre film the, those films one and two and I've been I was uh you know because these are by female writers and directors uh you know this franchise and um it seems to have feminist credentials so uh, I was kind of quite interested in these as sort of feminist films or you know what they kind of say about the female body or horror but actually when I was watching them I thought there's actually nothing really that I think would distinguish these films from the, the rest of the slasher cycle. They don't appear to be particularly feminist or really, I mean, they are parodies, but I don't know. I didn't really know where I sat on that. So I just wondered what your perspective might be having watched them. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that there is, it's that thing, isn't it? There seemed to be such a shift from Rita Mae Brown's original script, which was obviously mm -hmm. a really direct sort of parody of the slasher film. And then as soon as someone like Roger Corman comes involved, it instantly is going to challenge that because his sort of, you know, need for films that he produces to have some tits and arse in them, basically, yeah. to have that nudity. <laughs> um, and I agree, you know, it's one of those things you kind of, you feel, especially with the first one, that there's all this sort of potential to create a really interesting sort of challenge to and, and, and parody of the slash film, which kind of sometimes gets a little bit lost in the wayside. But I think there are moments within these films that do point towards I mean, I don't want to say feminist because I don't know if the intention necessarily is there with Amy Holden Jones for it mm. to be an intentionally feminist film. But there may be little traces through from the original story that do that. And I think the main thing is that shift. We, we classically get in the slasher film, it's the sort of the male fear of sex and the female body. But what mm -hmm. we get in the Slumber Party Massacre films is it's the female fear, the virginal female fear of sex. So that slight shift could arguably be where we can see this slight sort of female authorship, maybe, rather mm. than feminist, in my opinion, anyway. That's, uh, that's a really interesting point, because, yeah, you have this massive drill uh, as a weapon. <laughs> but then, of course, in like the second film, they really amp it up 
And not only do we have this massive drill, like the, symbol the symbolism of which I think is fairly obvious, but it's attached to a guitar, um, which is held by this kind of highly sexualized greaser guy. And it's just so threatening, but also kind of attract, you, you feel like it's attractive and threatening at the same time. It's yeah. quite bizarre, it's but yeah, no, so I, I take your point. It is quite confusing, but no, I do take that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that idea, I mean, this is, I always kind of, fascinated by this idea of sort of sexually attractive serial killers or you know murders <laughs> no, because you know I, I was really lucky a couple of years ago I got to teach a course on serial killer films which was wonderful really? and it was so much fun yeah wow. and uh, wow. and one of the weeks we did was on the fall because I wanted to talk about Jamie Dornan basically but this idea of how of you know that sort of weird thing about having a sort of some a sexually attractive killer someone who kind of go oh this is really oh he was quite fit but actually also he's a sadistic murderer and I think that's as far as I'm aware what Deborah Brock was kind of going for in the second film in this idea that it's a fear of your sort of sexual desire and that mm. the um you know uh um oh her name's gone from my head but that you know the protagonist is, is it Courtney Courtney yeah that's it so Courtney kind of is is scared of her own sexual desire which is why the killer in this particular one is kind of attractive yeah, and her boyfriend is so wet as well. Like her boyfriend is juxtaposed with the killer and her boyfriend is just the blandest man you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but she wants to find him attractive. She clearly doesn't. I, di <laughs> I, did, I did read that initially their plan was to have both played by the same guy. Really? So yeah. that yeah. the killer is, yeah. a, so they're both projections of her fantasies, but kind of like opposite sides of that, which would have made it a much more interesting film, but potentially quite confusing for the drive-in audiences that we're going to go and watch it, I suppose. <laughs> but you get that thing, I think, with the second film as well, with those, what really struck me watching it was the use of sort of point of view, like straight down the camera, medium shots of the boyfriend, where you're kind of taking her point of view. But it's it's slightly weird. Like, it's interesting that it's from her perspective, so you get this idea of the female gaze and her mm. desire. But then he's kind of, it's such a weird sort of jarring use of that particular shot, for me anyway. And then I, yeah, I read that Brock was like, wanted to make it jarring and a bit unnerving to suggest that sort of, that the killer and the boyfriend are sort of two sides of the mm. same coin. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting you mentioned there about watching and, and gaze, because so much of both films is about voyeurism and spying on and seeing things that we shouldn't be seeing. We get shots of, in both movies, we see boys staring through the window into the uh, slumber party and getting, getting the ultimate fantasy of what girls look like at slumber parties, uh, complete with feather pillow fights and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that. And obviously in the first film, there's the sequence in the showers. So there's a lot of sort of looking and it's in, and and that's where I suppose you can argue that it's not particularly feminist because this is just the same sort of stuff that we see in all those other movies like Porky's or something in places. Um, so that's interesting that you say there about it being reversed a bit more, perhaps, oh. which is something, you know. There is that whole like point of view thing in slasher, in the slasher genre anyway, you know, the whole, the idea that you're as, a, as an audience member, you're being in many slasher films, you're kind of forced to identify with killer and it makes you feel weird, you know, um, whereas in, uh, in the Slumber Party Massacre, I don't think we identify, do we identify with the killer? Uh, are we often kind of aligned with the point of view of the kind of protagonists? Um, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about it. Yeah, I think definitely in the second one, it's almost like Brock makes a point of saying, look, this is the female point of view right from the start, you know, rather yeah. than usually in, like you say, in those slasher films very early on, the classic format is 
early on a scene where you are this sort of dis, you know the disembodied point of view of the slightly potentially supernatural serial killer um whereas here we get early on the point of view of our female protagonist so it's almost like kind of really like hammering that home oh look it's the female you know yeah female whereas thing. like in the first film uh amy jones's take is like we just have tits and arse for the first like 10 15 yeah. minutes it's just like really kind of sexualized shots of women in showers and things <laughs> which is yeah. That's the one thing, like, I was kind of, you know, I always feel a little bit disappointed. I know that she had to include that, but there are, there are kind of, well, I suppose this is the thing, I whenever I kind of read interviews with Amy Jones, I get the feeling that she didn't, she, she wanted to make a comedy. She didn't want to make a feminist film. She wanted to make a horror comedy. So therefore, maybe she wasn't as interested in kind of doing those tits and arse scenes in, in a way that kind of show the naked body, but at the same time, maybe question, like, the male kind of gaze and the need to show tits and arse. But then I think, you know, that's, that comes down to maybe she didn't actually, she was not unlike Rita Mae Brown who had this sort of overtly feminist script. Mm. Actually, Amy Jones was more interested in making a film and not necessarily it being a, a feminist film. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the sense I, I get from interviews with her as well. Like we're keen to kind of, uh, yeah, project this image like, oh, it was a feminist script to start with. So obviously, but actually no, yeah. <laughs> maybe we are just reading too much into it. And yes. of course it, it was a script, as far as I know, it was, a, it was an unmade script on Roger Corman's shelf and it took her coming in and making these adaptations to show how it could be the kind of commercial product that Corman wanted. I guess as it was on the page, that wasn't selling to Corman what the kind of thing that he wanted to do. So maybe it would just never have happened. It would have just sat there as an unmade script unless mm. she came along and did what she did. Yeah, and quite quite a radical rewrite, I think it was. Mm. Um, the other thing, like going back to this idea of the, the gaze, though, and we have those shots, obviously, in the shower sequence, which are so, so like, you know, pan down the body. But what we do have is also the sort of um, female sexual desire or young female sexual desire that evens that out a little bit with the copy of Playgirl that, you know, and with these, you know, two sisters who are 17 and 12 talking openly about masturbation and you know the the female consumption of the naked male form mm. and images from playgirl of you know that you know sort of the the, the naked man bending over to the look getting in the refrigerator whatever it is yeah. so it's i think and i don't know whether that is a sort of something that's come over from um the original script but there is that kind of discussion of female sexual desire in a very frank manner that is sort of slightly does again stand the film apart from maybe sort of other works within this the genre or that that particular cycle of the slasher genre mm -hmm. absolutely um yeah uh, and just and all those kind of the fact that it is especially the second film is from the point of view of um, Courtney who is just really working through her issues in relation to sex even she is quite uh, she's not a teenager the actor who plays her so it is you have no. to suspend your disbelief a bit I think with the character mm -hmm. with the characters in that film but yeah working through her issues as a teen girl in relation to sex uh, which yeah is kind of interesting. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that copy of Playgirl, it's Sylvester Stallone in there, yeah, that she's it? looking at yeah, in the centerfold. <laughs> Which, you know, but that's the 80s. Yeah, it's, it's a product of the 80s. Very much of its time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, where would you say, Alice, that, that these films fit within the bigger picture of either sort of slasher films or women making horror films within that period? Do these, are these special? films or is are there actually many more examples of this kind of thing going on 
Um, well, I mean, not huge, but at this particular period, not mm. huge amounts. Well, anyway, getting sort of those sort of mainstream releases. And I think, you know, sort of Amy Holden Jones has said over and over again that Roger Corman was the only person who was really, I can't remember, it was the, the there was, I read an interview, there's another director. Um, sorry, I've got complete like baby brain. I can't remember names at all, but the, a lady who directed, um, is it more rats or something? Is that, was that, no, I can't remember. Another director that basically looks like this big castle and there are all these men at the gates. And then, you know, Roger Corman was the only one who would open the door to women and allow them to direct films. And partly, you know, this wasn't because it was some great sort of wonderful gesture. It was more because these women were cheap, but he gave them a, an opportunity to go out and direct films. And obviously he worked with so many big directors who started off doing those sort of like more grindhouse films and then went on to do big pictures so it was an amazing opportunity but there was kind of few and far between shown by the fact that even after this you know Amy Holden Jones didn't go on to direct that many more films she ended up in a career in script writing um, but I always think it's quite interesting that in discussions of slasher films still these slumber party massacre tends to be if we think of all like kind of the key works on the slasher genre and it has dominated a lot of horror scholarships, you know, the slasher films. Slumber Party Massacre always seems to be kind of like, it's just mentioned, it's kind of referred to, it's never really the central focus of particular texts, which is quite interesting as a lot of the scholarship written on the slasher film is written by women and it takes this sort of feminist perspective. But I guess this comes back to the idea that these films, even though they are authored by women, are not necessarily feminist. Mm. Um, so, I mean, obviously now we have a change where we're getting a lot more sort of female directors coming through and, and creating, and especially within horror. But, you know, this period in the 80s, it's kind of far more, as far as I'm aware, you know, there probably are exceptions. But, you know, this is, if you look through a book on slasher films, you're not going to get very many beyond Slumber Party Massacre that are directed. Yeah, there's really, um, and there's really not much in terms of academic work on this. I was reading was it Jeffrey Noel Smith was writing about, I mentioned this earlier, was writing about female audiences for slasher films. But even then, Slumber Party Massacre was literally a footnote <laughs> in that article. So yeah. I just think, yeah, that it's kind of strange. Um, I mean, it's, I, I kind of personally liked this uh, franchise. Um, I know it's, it's, there's a lot of technical issues with the films. I'm not going to say they're good, <laughs> but, um, but in terms of kind of critical appraisal, given that there's been so much stuff done on slasher films, I find it quite surprising that there's so little about this franchise. Yeah, totally. And when, you know, when you invited me to come on, I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll go through the key book, see what's, you know, see what's been written on the film. And you, you get nothing. You get like a couple of sparse references. Um, and like you say, they're not the best films in the world but actually they are quite fun and they're real you know it's cult cinema they they I find that especially the first one kind of improves the more you the more I watch it the funnier I find it mm -hmm. um and so it is kind of true cult cinema in that way and that it's something that it doesn't need to necessarily be flawlessly produced but it's something that um I think definitely kind of built these core cult audiences who absolutely adore the film but it seems to have been overlooked maybe in terms of academic appreciation. Mm. And I mean that's kind of my fault as well because I always I mean that's not my fault but I pick films that are really annoying that there, there's been nothing written about like I always <laughs> I like me and Adrian um take turns choosing the film and this was my choice and I, I always pick something that's just so kind of niche that there's hardly any info on it so i'm really sorry guys <laughs> because we're making we're making the research now you know exactly. we're kind of, yeah. i mean one of the i guess the, the sort of the main theory that everybody knows about slasher films now is it's sort of 
come down into pop culture is the idea of the final girl mm. um and you know you can ask any film fan and they all they all know what that is and it's this even there's even it's, it's got its own show i think there's a show yeah. called final girl and and that seems to be now the main way if we talk about women in slasher films it tends to come down to that i think most of the time and these films also they they obviously there is a final girl or final girls anyway but i was wondering is is that necessarily the best way to talk about women in slasher films or are there other debates to be had around that or is that still the one that we need to keep coming back to i don't know what you think i think for the first one especially i mean you know we don't necessarily have a final girl in the clear-cut way that we do in a lot of those other slasher franchises mm. because actually you know we have in the first one we've got three girls who all kind of pile in at the end mm. um so it's a little bit more and and valerie doesn't quite fit the sort of final goal girl mold that clover sort of you know um defines within her work so I think there's a, again, it's, you know, it's, it is kind of, she is a, a final girl, but it's a little bit blurry. Um, slightly more in the second one, I think you get that more definitive, you know, sort of like uh, there's a point where she's being chased and then she stops and turns and she's the one who kind of attacks and she has that sort of witty reply. But even then, they're not the kind of clear cut final girls that we maybe see in some of the other ones. If Laura, if you had something to add to that. Uh, yeah, I was just going to make a note about, um, like, the, we get this idea of the final girl from the work of Carol Clover, don't we? Um, mm -hmm. So her book, Men, Women and Chainsaws, and I think her article, um, Her Body him, Himself, herself, I can't yeah. remember. But um, yeah, there's that, I, I think that's where we get the idea of the masculinized sort of central protagonist, the final girl who survives. But like, I've, um, I get a sense that this is like, maybe it's just backlash against as like academic work on this subject kind of grows over time but I get the sense that it's a trope that's been quite overstated or people feel like it's been really overstated and it's not mm -hmm. like like if you look at the slasher cycle in all its complexity you don't necessarily find uh that you know that many instances of there being a final girl I don't know yeah. what do you think I mean I think you, it's it's one of those things like you say it's sort of uh, it's almost like horror studies 101 the final girl isn't it you yeah yeah you know, people are <laughs> that's the first thing you go to oh it's men women and chainsaws and uh and there are works that have kind of taken it i really like halberstam's work you know to kind of taking it a little bit further and querying the final girl and you know there's sort of lots of other research that's kind of built on it because obviously it is a really important work but like you say it's not the be all and end all and there is variation and there is ways that you know you can critique it for I mean, there's quite a few ways that you can critique Clover's text, really, especially mm. in a sort of, which is a common critique about the fact that she doesn't really talk much about the female spectator. We can think about the ways that, especially horror spectatorship has changed. And it is not, arguably never was, the sort of boys club that Clover mm. makes it out to be. Um, and that's why I think it's interesting, you know, especially when we think about more contemporary works and how the final girl has shifted a little bit and, um, you start to get some films that have really in interesting final girls who are a bit more, even more kick-ass and fun and better than sort of yeah. one of the more famous final girls such as Laurie. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's it can dominate the discussion too much and then sometimes you start to lose other interesting aspects of the slasher. Mm. Um, but it is, I suppose, it extends from that age-old sort of desire to psychoanalytically analyse these films as all yeah, about they sex. They do beg that interpretation, yeah. though, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and that's coming from someone who does a lot of psychoanalysis. So I'm not going to be like, oh, bloody psychoanalysis. But, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, they, they kind of, they often do call for that, such an analysis. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, so your research is uh, like you're researching kind of European cinema and French cinema. Uh, how would you like? How would you kind of think about the influence of the slasher on French cinema or European think, cinema? Like, I'm really glad you asked that question actually because this is one of my big sort of bugbears when it comes to French horror cinema. I find that people often are really keen to sort of align French horror with French extremism. And although, yes, you've got some crossovers, you have films like, you know, Martyrs, which kind of really sit on the border of, of sort of horror and extremism. You also have the works of like um, Bastillo Amori, who come far more from a horror tradition. And they say, look, you know, are, their big influences are the American slashers. They come from a very different world and a very different sort of approach than your likes of Brea, Noé, you know, um, Dumont, all those sorts of people that are associated more with extremism. Mm -hmm. And also they are working in a very different world. It is nigh on impossible to uh, get a French horror film financed in France. You know, they French sort of finances do not want to put money into horror because they do not believe that there's an audience for it, even though French horror now internationally is kind of quite well received. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it was, you know, even in the case of uh, the recent film Revenge, um, you've seen Revenge, it came out, mm -hmm. it's on Shudder. Um, and yeah, it's a female director, really good, like proper genre rape revenge film. Like it really is just, you know, you get like real genre films that mm. sort of really embrace being a genre film. It's very, uh, it's very full on that film. Yeah, Coralie Faget, I should say her name. Okay. It's a female director. It's, it's yeah. full on and it's kind of wonderful in it's sort of, I mean, it's almost, it's some of the sort of visual metaphors are kind of really a little too obvious, but it's a really good fun film. But she said that she, that she couldn't get this film funded in France. She had to go and do an international co-production. It was the only way she could get money. Bastillo Amori, who did Livid, uh, sorry, did Inside, Arantillier, like a really classic now work of French contemporary horror, again, cannot get their films funded in France. So this is operating in a very different spectrum to the likes of the sort of extreme directors who tend to, you know, operate in that more art cinema kind of space. They, mm. you know, they don't have necessarily the same problems. Mm. So, so I've kind of gone off on a tangent here. That's now. okay. But anyway, so basically, but this is because these French horror directors, the real like gore directors are far more, they take their influence from the American slashers and they create these genre films that are sort of out and out genre films. And I think they're amazing and I love them and they're gory and wonderful but they kind of do something usually a little more as well. Mm, cool and I, I wasn't aware that I mean I kind of I would have suspected that there was it's the association with genre horror genre and exploitation isn't it that makes yeah. funding these films like they're not they're not particularly they don't maybe not seen as particularly artistic because of the genre associations possibly. Yeah, exactly. And I think there is this sort of, especially well within France, there seems to be looking down on those genre associations or, or the belief, and maybe the true belief that there isn't really a market for sort of out and out horror genre films in France. Mm. Um, but, and that maybe, you know, if you have these ones that sort of straddle or can, you know, play in the festivals that maybe then, oh, okay, this is slightly better because we've got this sort of, but even actually uh, Pascal Leger who did Martyrs, who arguably straddles extreme cinema you know he had he's done all his films in Canada since because again mm -hmm. there's just not the funding I think he said something like I mean which he could have been over he was like I got 50 after Martyrs I got 50 offers from America and like one offer from France mm -hmm. because it seemed to be like the American uh, studios in particular are like wow these French directors are amazing whereas in France they're just like no don't want to work with you <laughs> yeah I mean my research is more uh 
I kind of research British cinema and also kind of teach American cinema. Um, and my sort of research on has been on like more like exploitation type things from a sort of more industrial history of film perspective. But my sense in like British cinema is that there have always been a so bad associations between horror genre cinema and you know what should kind of be seen as art or get funded. But exploitation, there has always there has kind of been um, you know exploitation films that have been released and actually made back their money. So once upon a time, horror directors would do horror precisely because the people they could hire to do it were sort of new young directors and they were cheap. So going by the model of Corman's exploitation cinema and the films would make their money back. Um, so it was seen as kind of a sure bet at that level of, of film production. Um, so is there like, a his there's not a history of that in France, is there or is there? Because I'm, I'm not actually that, I'm not an expert. Not <laughs> as far as I am aware, because we get this sort of, in France you get like, there's obviously always been a horror cinema in France, but there's never quite yeah. been, you know, that. well, I don't want to say this because I, it's actually not something I've, if I was to write my book on French horror cinema, then I would be researching this. But at the moment, I've kind of really been focused on 21st century French horror. So mm -hmm. I don't want to kind of make big claims. But um, all I know is that now, currently, it's the case that these directors are feeling very much they need to finance the films themselves or go to international co-productions because they're just not interested. So even though they might show a good return and are likely to show a good return at least through dvd and international markets and you know these directors are creating works on minimum budgets they're still not kind of really showing that sort of interest i mean whether that would change now where we've started to have like the diff the the impact of raw maybe mm -hmm. might have might but you know again that's a film that kind of straddles these borders between extremism and horror it's not the out and out horror of some of the other works we have. But also the interesting factor as well is Alexander Aja, who's a hugely successful horror director, you know, obviously has moved over from France to America. But even with that, I mean, and he is such a big name in horror now, isn't he? So mm. as a sort of, and that's one thing I kind of find really interesting is this idea of this migration that we had of, of French horror directors over to America. Um, mm. And sometimes they come back, as Bostillo and Maury did, or sometimes mm. they kind of stay out in America and make loads of money. <laughs> I know, yeah. I know what my choice would be. Yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting that you mentioned revenge, because I mean, it's for all intents and purposes, it's not. It doesn't appear to be a French film. Mm. It's all shot in English, and so you wouldn't necessarily know anyway. But I was interested. What do you think about? the way in which the, the female character, I've forgotten her name, but the, the main protagonist, she's really made to suffer in that film before, you know, she has to suffer a lot before she gets to go on her revenge spree. And um, and again, that just got me thinking when I was again watching Slumber Party Massacre, the way in which the, the women very often are made to suffer at the hands of men in these films before eventually the tables get turned in some way. Um, I mean, how do we feel about that now? Do, does the fact that she gets revenge at the end make it okay that we have to witness her going through all this terrible stuff? Like, and because it's directed by a woman, does that mean that we should watch it differently than if that film had been shot by a man? If it was, you know, if it was the same film, but a male director, would we say, oh, this is terrible levels of exploitation? But because it's a female director, do we look at it differently? I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure what point I'm trying to make here, but I'm just I'm wondering what you think about that, and specifically with revenge, because these are some of the thoughts that I had when I was watching it. Yeah, I completely year. agree. It's, I mean, it's something that always, always makes me think. Like, am I 
how much do we kind of project what we want to see, especially when we hear that it's a female director, we're like, right, yeah, we're going to want to see with everything we kind of read. Oh, it's okay. But then also there's the flip side of that is like, well, just, just because we're, she's a female director, should she not kind of have that level of, of, uh, violence and gore and, and suffering, um, it's kind of we can't really limit women mm. on that or female directors on that way but mm -hmm. I do agree I mean but I suppose it can it comes down to the sort of intention of the director um and also the reading of the audience I think that's something you have to really we have to always think about as well is like how the audience consume these films and whether an audience or and a particular audience member is going to read that film as being empowering or whether they're going to read it as being misogynistic or whether they're going to read it as being finding the violence sort of titillating um so i'm the same as you i kind of don't really know the answer to that question <laughs> um it's something that we can you know that yeah. always kind of makes me think or is we, this okay? I mean, we kind of do place this burden of um, representation on female directors just because of the the numbers in terms of film historically and in terms of the present, there just aren't as many female directors. Um, so yeah, we kind of make these assumptions that somehow the author's identity has to be linked to the text, especially so if it's a female director, but actually does it? And also there's assumptions here about creativity and authorship and how we still attach a high importance to the kind of figure of the director in relation to the film as a creative product. Um, so we kind of are, yeah, we do work from these assumptions, I think, still. Mm. Um, and like I did too, when I watched Slumber Party Massacre, I thought, well, you know, Rita Mae Brown, uh, Amy Holden's directing it is going to be like a kind of eviscerating feminist slasher. It wasn't. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose, I mean, that is, it's problematic, whichever angle you come at it from, if, isn't it, I suppose. But the, just, I mean, specifically with revenge, I just felt like I was, when I was watching it, like, how many more rape revenge story, you know, films do I do I need to see? Like, we've, we've seen it so many times, obviously it goes back decades, and you think about things like I Spit on Your Grave and all sorts of things where, where women are horribly brutalised on screen, but it's justified because then they get their revenge at the end. And we cheer them on but i and that's fine but i don't know maybe i'm just squeamish in my old age and i i don't necessarily want to see that anymore you know i, I sort mean, of think are we going to move on from that or is this always going to be a film that people are making yeah i mean i suppose it makes up so much of the horror genre not yeah. all of horror cinema but you know there is uh we get it so often don't we say so like the sort of brutalization of the woman and mm. and then her getting her revenge um, I, one thing that kind of struck me when I was watching Slumber Party Massacre, I was kind of thinking about like, oh, have there been any slasher films or films of final girls in that kind of do something that, that kind of make, I can see as being more directly feminist. And I'm sure there are some out there, but I couldn't think of anything. Of this. But one thing I was thinking about was like, oh, have you ever seen Your Next, the Adam Wingard film? Uh, no, I know it, but no, I've yeah. never seen No, I haven't, it. sorry. It's a sort of home invasion sort of slash, but that one always sticks in my mind as being one with a final girl that was really cool and really kicked ass and that I really liked and didn't kind of fall prey to a lot of the sort of more negative sides of the final girl I found. So I suppose I was kind of, because I was trying to think about like, well, what makes a sort of feminist film or what makes it not necessarily a feminist film, but a film that's kind of maybe more empowering for women. 
And I thought, actually, something like your next, I found quite empowering as a woman, even though we get those sort of same tropes of stuff, the woman slightly being terrorized, but actually most of the time she does just kick ass and mm. she kind of saves the day. So it, maybe that's another way of thinking about it in terms of not necessarily a feminist film, but like, is this film potentially empowering for women in some ways? And then it comes back again to the audience member rather than necessarily the, the author or the director, you know, as you were saying, Laura. Mm. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was thinking about these things in relation to, well, more recently, Promising Young Women winning the, uh, getting the Oscar. Um, and uh, just, um, I also, I noticed that you, you'd published something on American Mary, is that right? Yeah. Um, I was thinking, I was comparing these two films in my head and thinking how much I liked American Mary compared to, <laughs> I know they're different, they're different films, but compared to Promising Young Women. Um, and yeah, I just wondered if you had anything kind of to say about American Mary in relation to those things we were just discussing or. Yeah, see, I found American Mary a bit problematic. Yeah. I was not a, I wasn't not a fan, but I found that it kind of for me personally, it sort of faltered at the end because it had, it was, I was really enjoying it up until the point where she kills the security guard. And mm. then it was almost like she became the monster that the sort of classic boys club of horror wanted her to be. Instead of being a woman who was empowered, who was doing something new, who was like, it was, you know, and even though she was torturing, she was getting her revenge on this horrifically kind of abusive um man and the, you know I could accept all of that yep that's cool mm -hmm. but when she kills the innocent security guard that's when for me she kind of became a monster and she moved from being sort of having this intention to just like being the sort of uh, I don't know um I don't know she kind of is like she lost control and for me that kind of ruined the film unfortunately I don't know what you, if you felt the same about, well, obviously you enjoyed it. So I, mean, um, I, I did. Um, yeah. It's been a while since I watched it. I think I, I saw it when it came out, but um, no, I did enjoy it. And I just like, I like the Soska sisters as well. Um, and I think I probably didn't have my critical hat on, but no, I'm, I'm maintaining that actually, no, I, I did enjoy it. The, the lecturer is, you know, such a bastard isn't he and he's like really aggressive yeah. and there's all these, you know, there's just really kind of good things and then I was just like oh but only if she only didn't kill that poor security guard who was completely innocent she would remain mm. being this sort of righteous getting I feel like she'd remain righteous she'd be just getting her revenge on this man but then it's it's that killing of the security guard I found this kind of like made for me the whole house of cards sort of like tumble down a little bit I, I can't contribute to this because I've never seen American Mary, unfortunately. But I have met the Soska sisters. Oh, <laughs> this okay. is my my usual slot in the podcast. Yeah, where I talk um, about every who I've met. every episode. There's always one. There's always at least one person that Adrian has met, and the uh, so this this episode it's going to be the Soska sisters. So tell yes. us your tell us your Soska sisters oh, that's, story. That's uh, it. Adrian. I is met that, them. At, uh, okay. <laughs> I met them at Fright Fest. They were very nice. I've got a photo. Oh. They signed a rabid poster for me. That was it. That's nice. Um, so uh, yeah, I think anyway. we've, we've kind of got way off topic now, yeah. um, but maybe that's a good point to kind of draw it to a close. Um, thank you so much, Alice. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to just tell us about, you mentioned a book that you might be working on. Do you want to mention oh, yeah, anything that you've yeah. got in the works? So, yep. So, um, uh, like I said, I'm co-editing a book on uh, international horror production in the 21st century, which is looking at the many different ways that horror is produced across the world. So trying to move away from the very Anglo-American sort of centric, centric focus of a lot of work on, on horror production and the horror industry. Lovely chapters from across the world uh, coming in. And uh, I've also, as I say, got a piece coming out in French Screen Studies shortly. And I have a chapter which I'm really, it's actually we didn't talk about at all on Prevenge, 
mm-hmm. which mm. is coming out in an edited collection um, called Mothers of Invention uh, on women, sort of or mothers in film and filmmaking practice. Um, and so. were, were you writing that whilst you were expecting your most recent? I, so I wrote that chapter. So it is a very sort of it's a, a very uh, what do they call it like autoethnography or a very personal piece. But I wrote it. Sh- I watched the film shortly after having my first baby, and mm. I wrote it. And it is very much on about sort of. I got to talk to Alice Lowe for like this is my I met so and so. I didn't oh, cool. meet her. I spoke to her on a Zoom call for like an hour, all about the film, which was just like meeting one of my heroes. Um, mm. And so the piece talks about her experience being pregnant making the film about her you know sort of central character Ruth being pregnant in the film and then my experience being sort of just having a baby and watching the film with the sort of horrors of pregnancy fresh in my mind because I am not a happy pregnant woman so (laughs) so it was a yeah it was it was kind of pregnancy was very fresh in my mind when I was writing it wow wow um well, that yeah, what, great. I, I, I have no idea what it's like watching a horror film about pregnancy after just having a kid. Excellent. All right. Well, well um, thank you so yeah. much for coming on and talking to us about your uh, your research and your thoughts on these films. It's been really interesting. Thank you yeah, very much. Thanks for so me. much. Yeah, thanks, uh, everyone for listening um thank you to uh thanks alice for coming along and uh chatting with us and thanks to my co-host adrian um, thank you for giving me his take on the slasher cycle um has has slumber party has the series sort of changed your mind about slashers are you going to watch any more slashers um well i'm definitely going to make sure that all my doors and windows are locked before i uh before i have a slumber party these films are definitely instructional, if nothing else. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm always up for watching anything, pretty much. So uh, I wouldn't say no. I definitely need to work my way through the rest of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. And I am going to seek out Slumber Party 3. So uh, yeah, I'll start there and see what happens. Cool. But um, yeah, I wanted to thank everybody for listening so far. And I just wanted to say how excited I am to discover the page uh, that tells me where people are listening to our podcast. So currently, as well as the UK and America, we have listeners in Australia and also Japan. Japan. So, wow. yes. So if you're out there and you're listening to us across the other side of the world, thank you so much. And uh, why not drop us a line and uh, tell us how you found us uh, or leave us a review on iTunes or whichever other platform you're using. So maybe we need to start picking films based on countries and slowly fill in <laughs> fill in all the not based on that. not based on how batshit they are. No, well, just based on countries. Yeah, <laughs> just start <laughs> coloring in different places on the map as we go around. But yeah, anyway, it's great to great to know that people are listening. So thank you, and uh, do get in touch with us. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, and also by emailing us secondfeaturespod at gmail um, our Twitter is at Second Features, I think. Yes, yes, yes. I think that's right. So uh, do get in touch. Let us know uh, what you think, what you'd like us to cover. We're definitely open to suggestions. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just nice to know that people out there are, are listening to our ramblings. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Till next time. Bye. Sleep safe. Bye.